This sermon is going to captivate us, it's going to encourage us, and it's going to convict us. You know, it's hard to find the proper words to describe this sermon because there's really nothing else like it. It's it's been said that if you were to take together the best of all human philosophy, the best of all human ethics, condense it down to about three chapters worth of material, you would have a cheap imitation of the Sermon on the Mount. You would have the store brand quality Sermon on the Mount at best. And it's amazing to see how differently this sermon touches each human heart individually. Perhaps even differently the same heart as we come back to it time over time over the years. There's a reason they say that the Bible is the living word of God. Because it'll strike us differently as we read it over the years. You know, it's amazing because children as young as mine, five years old, can understand some of these concepts. And yet theologians can study the nuances of the things Jesus is teaching for decades and still not exhaust all of it. You know, I remember as a new believer just being awestruck by the concepts that Jesus is teaching here. I just had this burning in my heart as I read every perfectly worded lines as if to say, yes, this is exactly the way we should view this particular topic. Yes, this is exactly how we should view our sin. This is exactly how we should view prayer. It's as if everything Jesus said was perfect. Marvel concept, I know. But it's really struck me back then, even as a young believer, how powerful this sermon is. And now as somebody who spent a little bit more time in the Word, you know, I I see a different side of that same coin. I see that, you know, I don't measure up to the calling that Jesus is calling us to in this sermon. I don't pray the way that He prays. I don't love the way that He loves. I don't follow the golden rule as we come to it in the next chapter, the way that He calls us to. And that's a key part of understanding the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. To fully understand it, we need to understand we don't measure up to the calling of this sermon, that we need a Savior, that we have not earned our own salvation, that we have not achieved our own righteousness. We need the righteousness of another. Verse 20 tells us as much that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Clearly a shot at the Pharisees and their legalistic law-based approach to how we are to be saved. And Jesus is saying there that even those who dedicate their whole lives for the expressed reason of I'm going to earn my salvation still miss the mark still do not measure up to that. One commenter wrote that this sermon closes off every possible avenue of human merit and leaves sinners dependent on nothing but divine grace for salvation. And you'll notice a theme in in the way Jesus teaches this, that the law is a lot higher than those legalists perceived that it is. And 
He teaches us to avoid those same legalistic tendencies of those who have tried. Those who set to pray in a certain way, those who fast in a certain way, those who give in a certain way, and so forth. Jesus is making it clear throughout this sermon that it's not about that. It's about having a relationship with the living God and accepting the Savior he provided on our behalf, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as we dig into this masterpiece, let us experience the awe of what Jesus is saying. Let us also experience the mourning of realizing we don't measure up to this, but also the gratitude that God has provided the Savior who provided a way when there was no way. And it begins this morning with the Beatitudes. Now, John, what in the world is a Beatitude? That's not, that's not a word in the English dictionary, is it? You only hear that in church. In fact, it's not even in the text of the Bible. It's in there as a heading for this section, but you don't actually see the word Beatitude. It comes from the Latin word beatus, meaning blessed or blessed or more clearly in English, happy. And that word happy or blessed is all over this opening section, these first 12 verses. Um, and by happy, I don't mean in the fleeting temporary sense of I feel happy right now. Jesus is promising something more than that. It's a core part of who we are. Um, the permanent sense is about who you are, not what you feel right now. Let me give an example. When, the, when I first met my wife, she had a hard time talking to her loved ones and her family about me when we first started dating, starting to get to know each other. Because let's face it, everybody knows like five or six Johns. So she had to have some way to distinguish me. And the last name would just confuse the situation more. So she just referred to me by, some indistinguish by a distinguishable characteristic to describe me. She called me for the first couple of weeks and months, Happy John. <laughs> Something we still laugh about over a decade later. <laughs> um, but yeah, she called, she called me that because it, uh, somewhere between my smile, my demeanor, I just... Happy just described me in a way apparently she didn't describe the other Johns in her life. Something that was steadfast about me, not just something that, oh, he's not happy today, it's here, he's happy right now. It, it was something deeper, lasting, a core identity of happiness. And that's what Jesus is saying will come to those who follow him. To those who meet the description of these beatitudes, will have that deeper level of happiness. And just to be clear, Jesus means happy, not extroverted. We don't want to mean we don't want to look down on anybody or question somebody's salvation if they're not walking around hugging everybody. But if there's a deep core satisfaction and joy that we have as Christians, that should mark us in distinguishably. So Jesus sees all of these people, this mix of Jews and Gentiles that we were describing last week, um, gathering from all over the region to see this man. 
Some say he's the Messiah. Some others say he's a prophet or some great teacher. With these rumors spreading all over the region of these incredible miracles that he's doing that we read about in the last chapter. And right or wrong about their assumptions, the eyes of the world are on him. And as he sits down, as verse 1 tells us, which was customary for teachers to do back then, they would, we stand today, but they would sit back then. And then Jesus proceeds to turn our understanding of our circumstances completely upside down in this wonderful riddle of seeming contradictions. Let's pick it up in verse 2. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit? Now, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Blessed are the downcast. Blessed are those who are spiritually impoverished. Seems like a contradiction. But Jesus is saying this purposely. Happy and blessed are not the self-sufficient. Happy and blessed are not the self-satisfied, but those who are dependent on God and recognize their need for them. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven because you don't have to be spiritually wealthy to enter. But the key is recognizing our spiritual poverty, our utter inability to enter the kingdom of heaven by our own merits. And by recognizing that, theirs is the kingdom of heaven because you will seek the Savior who provided the way. When you know the way is not within you, you seek the way. And as we come to it, Jesus said, those who seek shall find. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And I love it that the truth about salvation is implied right from the opening line of this of this incredible introduction. Man, Jesus was such a master communicator. But the proud and self-sufficient are not so. James 4 tells us God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that theme is evident throughout all the other Beatitudes as well. That God opposes the proud, the self-satisfied, but gives grace to the humble, those who recognize their need for them. It's not about finding our comfort, our peace, and our satisfaction in the things of this world, but in the things of God. Not being self-satisfied, but being God-satisfied. But John, you, do, you, you don't know. I, I have needs. I have to provide for my family. I'm dealing with this family situation. I'm dealing with this medical thing. How can you say I, I need to be seeking these things? Well, hold on. Don't get ahead of me. That's all addressed in chapter 6. Where Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. The Lord knows that you need all of these other things. And he'll take care of those things for you too. We're just going to put the first things first. As the rest of this introduction encourages us to do. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And you know, it took me a while to accept this next part because I don't believe that Jesus is talking specifically about those who have lost loved ones, but those who weep and mourn over their sinful double-mindedness as James 4 talks about. Um, 
Let me give an example to try and clarify what I'm talking about here. Because the greatest example in church history, I believe, was Martin Luther himself. The great reformer who lived 500 years ago. Um, right at the peak of when the Catholic Church had lost the gospel. And they had reverted to this legalistic system where you had to earn your way into salvation. And... They, they, they were blurring the line of salvation, that one-time act of trusting in Jesus as your Savior, with sanctification, the process of becoming more like God and growing in His grace. They had blurred the line back then, a terrible mistake that they still have not yet formally recovered from. But Luther being caught up in this system, this legalistic system, was now... Uh, became a priest and he passionately pursued the highest orders of the religious system of the time. Not because he had this overwhelming love of God, but had this overwhelming dread as he thought about God. Because he knew, he, within himself, he knew he had not earned his salvation. He knew he wasn't as good as he desired to be, much less what the Bible had called him to be. Being holy as I am holy, that's holy. And that's a hard standard if that's what we have to meet to be saved. <laughs> he was going to confession constantly because he was in fear that if he forgot something, God wouldn't forgive him of it. It's, that's a legalistic system at its best right there. That's the pressure that you could imagine being under. And to that degree, what he was feeling, this disconnect of realizing what I am and what I want to be is mourning over sin. Being desperate to be better, but not being able to accomplish it because we don't have the power to do so. Funny enough, it was in that mourning over sin that Martin Luther, in the midst of this system that had lost the gospel, he rediscovered the gospel. As he was able to read the gospel in the book of Romans and throughout the book of Galatians. He rediscovered it's not by my works, but by faith and by grace that we are saved. And this changes everything for Luther. Realizing it's not about what I have to do for God, but resting in what God has already done for me. And suddenly he had complete peace with the God he once was terrified of. And he's able to have peace and joy that followed him all the rest of the days of his life, even through all the other trials and tribulations that came with starting a reformation. One that continues to this day. Of course, as he realized that he, God had already unconditionally accepted him, the fear and the pressure of this legalistic system that held him just melted away. Fear has no place when you know that you're loved. And that's our joy that we have in Christ. That is the comfort God offers to those who mourn over their sins. Those shall be comforted by the love of God as you realize his love for us as explained in the gospel. That Jesus died so that I don't have to. That the sting of death has been taken away. And funny enough, 
That is the greatest comfort we can receive when we are mourning the loss of a loved one. You know, there's very little you can say to provide deep comfort at a funeral. And while there's nothing, I don't believe that there's anything anybody can say that can take away the pain, but it provides great comfort to the mourning to know that there is a way to peace on the other side. And his name is Jesus Christ. When that potentially terrifying but inevitable question crosses the mind, could I be next? The truths of Scripture provide more comfort than anything. Romans 8 says there is now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. Uh, In other places it says that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So yes, the pain that you feel is real. But the, the great comfort that God provides us, those who look to our comfort not in ourselves but in God, is even more real, even more tangible, and even more comforting than we could put words to. Knowing that God is not a legalist, knowing that God was not excited to pass down judgment, but that 1 Timothy 2.4 says he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, of which I am ever so grateful for. Well, now that introductions are over, we'll be able to move a little bit faster and through the material next week. We'll have to cut it off there for today. But isn't it amazing how even though we've barely scratched the, tr- the surface of this sermon, we've already been able to unpack so much. I can't wait to see what God is going to do as we go through this series of this incredibly encouraging, incredibly convicting discourse from the lips of Jesus himself. Thanks be to God. Amen.